the SIA regulate the industry in hindsight. They're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic when it should be steered properly. The whole process is wrong. Welcome to The Circuit Magazine, the number one source of information on protection matters, the industry-leading magazine for all security professionals who want to stay ahead of the game. Does the EP industry need more regulation or less regulation? The SIA has made an interesting start on this very endeavor, and today we are going to be talking to Richard H., CEO of Mobius, and as I say very often, great friend of the industry, to look at where perhaps it has shortcomings and where perhaps it has laid a foundation. I'm here with John Moss, and together we're going to tackle this topic. John, it is quite controversial, isn't it? Because it's not often that businesses ask for more regulation. I don't know if it's fair to say it's controversial. It, it is, but maybe it's better to say it's a hot topic. It's definitely something that everyone likes to debate and have their two pence worth. Clearly, the regulation that's in place doesn't raise standards to the level at which most people, most professionals in the industry would like them to be. And I think that is the crux of it, really. Okay, so regulations and standardization, um, I think it is not the same thing in this context. So are we asking the SIA or another body to set in place some minimum age requirement or some minimum length of CP course, or even some minimum background before you embark on CP? Is that what we're sort of looking at them to, to do? Well, I think it's, a, it's an option. It's also a dangerous path. It's, I wouldn't be quick to run to embrace that, because I think when you leave it to people outside of the industry to make big calls like that, that prohibit certain people from working based on generalizations i.e you know somebody of a certain age or below a certain age is not equipped to do the job yet somebody can come in with no prior background or experience who's older and that automatically gives them the right i mean yeah as a generalization that might be true more often than not but Leaving it to people outside of the industry to make those decisions isn't always the best way. And, and I know a lot of people would say, well, bring in people from inside the industry. But even then, you know, there's such a wide array of opinion on how to do it, who should do it, and how we all come together in a harmonious way to achieve something that is for the greater good and of a single vision for the whole industry. I mean, some might say it, it, it's actually good that you know, people have a piece of plastic that says you, you have your CP license. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you look at the states, there's no one single regulatory authority. Um, everything is you know, state by state. So are we, are we maybe the baseline envy of the world? Um, I, 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 that doesn't even matter. And then, and then I guess one of the other topics that we can look at in today's uh, you know, podcast, what happens when you have a UK CP license, 
but you have to operate abroad, especially in a hot environment or a dangerous environment. There are certain skills and certain capabilities you, you just won't have learned about. So is it is it the baseline envy of the world or is it irrelevant? Well, I kind of think it's a little like the NHS. So the National Health Service here in the UK, most people inside the UK who rely and depend upon the NHS outside of a pandemic, pre-pandemic, before we suddenly started blowing the trumpet of care workers, most people would only criticize and uh, have issue, take umbrage with the NHS. However, when you compare it to a lot of other models, commercial models, and of course, looking at the US as a prime example of that, and I think a lot of people would look at the NHS and, and they would shake their heads in disbelief that a service can provide so much for free, right? However, when you compare the standard of service that you receive in the commercial world in, in the US, it's pushed higher because we have this standardization here in the UK. That means, okay, you can expect as a bare minimum all of this, but beyond that, you're not going to get much more than that in a lot of cases. And I think it's very true of the SIA. So the SIA came and it established a bar and that bar immediately cut out a lot of people. But these are people who had no business being in the industry in the first place. And then that bar hasn't really raised since it was first put in place. And that's where a lot of people are upset. And I guess you, you could say, let the market decide, but there is an, uh, you know, a large complaint that people will just do a race to the bottom because sometimes they use EP as a tick box exercise. Not always, of course, but sadly, there are some tick boxes out there. So if you let the market decide, maybe they will take the person with zero experience. And then conversely, let's imagine we do raise the bar and say, right, everyone needs some years tuition and exam in CP. Well, then what do you do with the industry leaders? Do you grandfather them in? Do you allow them to just say, well, I've had this many years experience, so I automatically get a diploma in EP? And, and then and where, where does that stop? Anyway, these are big questions, and this is a big interview. Um, so, so I don't really want to get too much ahead of it, but, but, but I think we can, well, shed a light on it for the, for the people that are new in the industry. They'll probably say, oh, what's all this about? And then uh, pique the interest of a lot of people who are continually talking about this debate, because it is a hot topic. I said controversial, but you are right, John. It is hot, and people do like to debate it. So let's hear from Richard H, CEO of Mobius, and we will discuss standardization regulation in the UK of the CP industry. And now let's meet one of the contributors to the Circuit magazine. The current state of the UK CPEP industry, we're here with Richard H. We're going to be looking at licensing. We're going to be looking at the current regime in the UK, the context and everything to do with CP in 
this country. I'm here with Sean West, and together we're going to explore this topic. Richard, it's it's a great pleasure to have you on. How are you doing? Good afternoon, Pelham. Good afternoon, Sean. Yes, very well, thank you. Fantastic. Well, lovely to hear you here. I know I know you're 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 very prolific. Um, you you you're a published author and uh, and a great friend of the industry. So let's start with three quick fire questions. What do you think is sort of wrong uh, with the current uh, landscape? What what problem do you think needs to be solved? That question I could I could answer. Oh, how long have you got? Really, basically, is the answer to that one. I could waffle on and bore you to tears for eternity. The the industry as a whole, I think, in order to look at the future, you need to look at the, the past, um, specifically in the last three decades. Um, and that is really where close protection uh, interest and involvement for me actually begun. So when we look back to the early 90s, I attended two commercial CP courses. Um, and don't forget, this is an unregulated industry at the time. And the courses were, one of them was held in a garage in the bottom of a garden. The other one was more properly designed um, within a purpose uh, location. So it had a house to conduct residential security. Uh, there was an element of vehicles, counter surveillance and a whole host of subject matter. Um, there were the delivery of which wasn't actually that bad, considering the, the period of the, the industry in itself. Um, I conducted those with a view to leaving the forces that I was presently employed in. And having conducted those two courses, I then fired off my CV to all and sundry companies um, in the naivety that it was at the time. I soon realized that obviously you're in a catch 22 situation, you need experience um, and the companies out there at the time, close protection wasn't really a huge uh, industry sector. Um, it was very niche boutique style um, and very specific according to uh, clients. I mean, when a comparison to, to today's environment, um, the, the industry is, is a beer moth now. Um, it's, it's huge on, on a global scale and it was very niche in those days and uh, experience was really the catch 22. So that's the reason why I transferred um, within the forces to gain that course training um, and the experience to then with a view to leave. So that started in 1996 for me, um, the training and first deployment in close protection. When I then left the forces some six years later, um, you're coming into a, an industry where I was absolutely shocked at the standards on display, um, standards in terms of training, standards in operationally. And um, although I had gone into a permanent role, um, I was surrounded by people with a similar background. So um, for the majority of which um, those people that didn't have our background, you could easily uh, tell the difference in standards on the ground and the way they spoke about CP in general. So when you actually consider where the industry is going and where it has been and the implementation of the SIA imposing their standards for the UK, um, you have to accept the fact that in answering the question, is the industry in a better place now than what it was pre-SIA? 
The answer has to be yes, it is. And it, the answer is yes, because um, the two remits of the SIA, one was to remove the criminality of the industry, and the second was to raise standards. Now, argumentatively, the, the second uh, aspect of what they've done, um, to my mind, they, they just haven't done whatsoever. It's a, a um, lip service, token gesture. Um, and the bottom line with the standards out there is very watered down. Um, and he here we are talking about um, the level of the industry right now. Um, but one has to bottom line accept that the industry is actually off to a better start point now than what it was three decades ago. It's in a much better place. But comparatively speaking, it's a much larger industry as well. So in terms of answering your question, um, <laughs> I mean, the industry is annoying to me. It is. It actually gets me frustrated because um, there are various uh, excuses now concerning the level of training. There's there's a, a certain level of acceptance that this is our lot in life. We have to deal with it and get on with it. Stop the negativity. Stop whinging about the training. Stop whinging about um, the standards out there. And yet, if we don't whinge, nothing will happen. Now, before the the advent of Facebook and the uh, the increase in social media, the the actual presence of the internet has benefited both training and operational um, views of the industry as a whole. Um, it, there, are, there are positives and a huge number of negatives to it. And gen generally, there are forums that were created um, that would, uh, the thrust of, the, of which was a, actually a good idea. Uh, it was a, a basis to discuss aspects of the industry where people could come together um, and know more about the industry to learn from each other. And yet there was a section of that industry of the forums where there'd be um, arguments involved and there'd be parts of the forums where there'd be uh, boxing uh, elements of it for people to go and argue. And it was this, it was the part of the industry really that you have to have to stand back and say, what is going wrong with this? Why are people arguing? Why is there a general attitude of this? And the thing is one has to now revert back to the SIA because what they've imposed to the industry is an open door policy to all and sundry. Anyone can enter the industry. You don't, regardless of background, you don't need any previous experience, previous training um, to actually enter the security industry as a start point. Um, there's no minimum age. There's no minimum medical. I mean, I, I can, I don't wish to bore you too much, but I can run through a list of, um, a list of aspects to a detriment to affecting close protection operational performance. Um, so we have the four main subjects. We have poor components of a CP training candidate, poor components of a CP training course, poor components of a CP training provider, poor components of a CP service provider. And then on top of all of that, you have the imposition of poor standards by government organizations and authorities, um, the SIA, for example. And then on top of that, another layer, the uh, CP operations are detrimentally affected by the laws. So in terms of um, for example, when you do a comparison between a commercial CP operation and that within the government nature, a government CP operation have got the full powers of law on their side. So when, for example, they're doing a, a, a move with a principal when they're going to a location, 
they can control other traffic flow they can close roads they can they can go whatever speed they like um, when they get to the venue they can have cordons they can control unknowns they can control crowds and so on they can have a sterile environment from a to b and throughout the move from a to b um, so in terms of where we are with the industry um, yes we're in a better place but is it actually fit for purpose and the answer is no it's not and it's not fit for purpose because anyone can enter the industry the training is poor and there's no oversight and so the end user any client if they could have a serious reason for their buying of the service the selling of the service is done by the full scope of business aspects and everything detriment because of a business Again, if we were to make a comparison between the commercial sector and the government sector, the commercial sector is um, detrimentally influenced by everything associated with business. So when someone says, um, what, is, what is the business of close protection to a company owner? Well, first and foremost, at the top of this list is to make a profit. And there are detrimental aspects of profit making within a CP operation. But the reasons for that CP operation, for that principle, may be exactly the same for that private sector as it is in the government sector. They may have um, uh, some specific targeted threat, and yet within a private sector, it's detrimentally affected because um, the way a company sells its services, the way it provides its services, and a knock-on effect for everything. So when you actually look at the business as a whole, the, um, the company is affected possibly by um, the way the fact that it's incorporated by someone who may not even have any knowledge or training experience within the service they're delivering. Um, the management may not have any experience or knowledge. Um, the people they put on the ground are um, recipients of very poor training. Um, and so the end user, after, after you've actually gone through all of this entire process, the end user receives a very watered down um, service in terms of operational effectiveness. The mm -hmm. actual underlying fact or the underlying point with the whole of this, the whole of this topic and the reason why we are where we are is to my mind solely based on the very fact of the lack of any incidents that could be directly attributed to the poor function of a CPO on the ground. Now, what I mean by that is, when you think about the many CPO operations out there in the private sector, how many times do you see videos or hear of something going terribly wrong where the principal has been injured or killed as a result of the poor effectiveness on the ground by the security providing? And because of the lack of, um, uh, occurrences, nothing can be attributed to actually spike a, uh, an inference that actually, yes, the training is that poor, that's why that's happened, and that's why that principal has been injured or killed. And because post protection in the private sector, for the majority of reasons, is, is conducted because of a, a life smoother. It's provided because of a what if, um, in case of, as opposed to I have a specific threat, I'm coming to London, I need security without a doubt. It's, um, it's, a, it's a can of worms question that, you, that you've asked, Pelham, 
and and there are so many affecting factors so many influences that affect the end result um for for any for any client um it's a whole host of manifestations that have been imposed by the sia um as i as i say i mean i could talk to i could talk for ages about it um but i mean i'm going chopping i'm chopping from one end to another I'm missing a whole load out. Um, there's a whole load of text that I could waffle on about forevermore. But the, the actual, the, the thing, I mean, close protection, as in many, for many of us, is a passion of mine, and it has been for decades. And it's just so sad to see that we have a, a government regulator who uh, falls to the bottom line um, in a minimalistic approach. But the thing is, in, in their defence, in the SIA's defence, it's not really their fault, because when one looks at the wording of the Private Security Industry Act 2001, the wording is written to such that a body needs to be formed to work on behalf of the Home Office. Now, the Home Office have got their own remit insofar as reducing unemployment, increasing employment. They're, they're focusing on statistics. Of course, the private security industry, as we know, is a, is a booming industry. The tax revenue is huge. There are thousands and thousands of people employed in it. And so it's very important that the SIA have, uh, have an approach where the rationale um, is, um, is equal to both sides of the selling and buying of the market. So if they are to impose a, a stringent regulation that affects either one or, or the other, of course, the end, the end result for the Home Office is going to be such that the revenue is going to be far less. So when the SIA working on behalf of the Home Office and the Home Office have their own remit, the SIA can't be seen to be working in, in um, uh, contrary to that. They can't be seen to be placing barriers to employment. So hence, what we, what we can't have is a, a system and process whereby we are setting hurdles for anyone enter, entering the industry. We can't be seen to be setting hurdles for um, a minimum age, for example, um, a, a fit, fit for purpose, medic, medically, uh, physically fit, mentally fit, even for joining the industry. Um, the SIA course, it can't be seen to be um, to be so difficult for someone to fail. It has to be an open door policy. If people have to be accepted into the industry, they have to be accepted and helped through the course. And there you go out to employment to provide a serious service for a client who may have a serious reason for that service. So what we have, we have a lot of aspects affecting the end user from, um, uh, from the standard of candidate for training to the training course um, and a whole host of uh, detrimental reasons from a business perspective in the private sector to all affected by the overall remit of the home office. And so what? where, where is the industry left with? The industry is left with a watered down service that is for the most part unfit for purpose for the end user who is acquiring that service that may be serious. Richard, the other, the passion coming out in your voice, you know, really frustrates you, the SIA, how it's all been rolled out. Just flipping back, what, what do you think has been positive? What, what have they done right? Have they done anything right that you think, you, you mentioned, I think one positive was getting rid of the criminal element from many years ago. So that was a positive thing bringing in licensing, but what else do you think the SIA has done right, if anything, in your eyes? Nothing. 
they haven't done anything right. The, the criminality is just a tick box, and that's easily done through these DBS checks. In terms of actually, there are the remit of raising standards. Um, when you to actually ask them, and I've written off to them numerous times, and their responses are totally bewildering. So when, for example, you're saying, why isn't there a minimum age? Their reply is saying there is a minimum age, it's 18 years old. But 18 years old minimum age is a standard default setting for any industry. It's, 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 a, uh, it's not a minimum age because the SIA imposed it. It's a, it's a default setting in minimum age. When you say to them, um, why can't you impose uh, minimum medical and health checks and so on? They'll turn around and say, well, that's down for the employer to decide. There's, a, there's an element of um, the minimalistic approach that the SI have conducted and on challenging that level, they all have slopey shoulders and say that um, that's not our remit, that's the responsibility of the employer. Yeah, so they're, they're allowing licensing to take place at the minimum standard and then they're passing the book to the employer. Absolutely. So, so SIA, why isn't there a driving license required? You're basically telling me that a school leaver without a driving license, who is half blind, half deaf, who gets out of breath walking up a couple of flights of stairs, can attend a two-week course and provide a service, a serious service, to an end user who actually may have mm -hmm. a serious threat to life. The, the, when, you actually, when you actually consider the ramifications of what an industry regulator has imposed to an end result of what is being received by the client, it is actually mind-baffling. And the thing is, we can, um, uh, we can uh, ask the industry, um, is close protection a serious business? This is a serious service. Everyone will provide you with a resounding yes, it is. Well, if it's so serious, why aren't we now providing a serious approach to training? Because the end user could have a serious reason for that service. The whole thing is uh, a ridiculous um, set of cards that have fallen because of a, a poor approach. Now, if we were to rewind to uh, pre-2012 when I, when I published that first book, I had written off to the SIA several times, um, asking them a whole host of questions. Um, and based the, the basis for these questions was trying to gain an understanding of how they came across, how they came across their decision-making processes with regards to the standards that they ended up. And the question was, did you consult with members of the Met Police, SES, Royal Military Police Close Protection, to provide advice and guidance on the standards. And they returned and said, yes, we did. But on a, a little more digging, they didn't. So what they did do was they consulted with former members of those units who then had commercial interests. And of course, the commercial aspect is, um, it, uh, insofar as close protection training is concerned, is to uh, rely on footfall. So they want a shorter course and increase the number of footfall through those courses as opposed to a far longer course um, with, a, with a fewer footfall. Now, of course, that's one and another reasons why the SIA have, a, have um, uh, insisted on a short course, because to increase the course, 
uh, the duration of the course rather would increase costs and it would increase the amount of time obviously to attend the course so when you consider from what the home office remit is to get people back to work or um, to, to change their career and so on it's a case of well that that student now needs to find say two or three or four times more cost uh, funding to attend that course which could take three foot three two or three four more times to uh, to pass so the whole thing works against the remit of the home office you see so where, do, where does this leave us at this bottom line the thing is we can stand back from this and think do you know what the United Kingdom have got a security industry regulator that impose a, a specific set of margins for close protection. When you actually look at other countries, whether you agree with the SIA level or not, and you look at other countries, let's take the US for example. So making a comparison between the SIA and the US, there's almost an argument of saying there is no comparison. The SIA are up here, the US are down here. And that's basic. That's basically um, because the SIA is a government body. The US doesn't have one. There's nothing at federal, federal level that imposes a set of standards. Some states don't even recognize close protection. Some states say all you need is a uh, concealed carry weapons permit. Some states actually impose, uh, I think it's um, uh, Vegas, I may be incorrect, impose a minimum standard of a uh, personal protection specialist, I think they call it. But we, I think we're talking two states out of the over 50 states to like, that, that have a set of standards that you need to pass, but those standards are still very low. What's the private sector do about that in the United States? Well, I mean, this whole discussion thing that the industry on a global scale now is fantastic. People are talking about close protection. People are talking about uh, how to raise standards out there. But for me, it's what, what is the end result of this talk? Is talk. Yes, there are seminars, there are courses and so on and all the rest of it. But there's no, there's nothing that imposes a bottom line standard. The client in the US doesn't know what he's going to get. Well, it's likewise, that's argument, argumentatively the same for the, for the UK as well. Because stood by side, you could have someone who's not trained, such as in a two week SIA course, and someone who is trained, stood side by side weighing the same. And yet the client doesn't know until something's happened. And by then it's too late, you see. So it's exactly that what you're just saying. When I joined the industry and I'd done my course, you know, you get, I think you get two different kinds of people. You get people who will look for a bargain basement course and say, I want to spend 800 pounds, a thousand pounds because I want to get the cheapest course because in the UK now, everyone has the same badge, whether you spend six grand on a course or 1000 and I went out and my course in South Africa at the time, great course, really enjoyed everything about it. I enjoyed the training, I enjoyed the experience. And when I joined the industry, it mattered what your background was and it mattered what course you'd done. You know, people looked at you at the, the provider you trained with and you got a bit of kudos because you'd invested in yourself and you'd went to this provider to do that course. And I think that's been lost now with the rollout of the SIA and the license requirement, because now absolutely it's just a tick box for, for a lot absolutely. of people entering the industry. 
so you know you will get your you know your good guys and girls who think yes i want to invest in myself this is a career i'm going to go and get the best training and spend five six thousand but whatever it may be on a course but on the whole you will get a lot of people who will spend you know a small amount and it's like you said you know someone flies up to the uk they need security and they don't know whether you, you know what training you've had you could be government level trained whatever you've done or you could be one of the other guys who spent a thousand pound on a course and that client may not actually know he's just got mm. that security operator next to him and it's like insurance you know until like you said until something goes wrong you you've got to hope what you're paying for that it's going to pay out and, and, that, and that's, that's the bottom line sean because let, let's face it how often do things go wrong when yeah. when things when things go wrong on cp operations uh we're not talking about um uh, an attack on principle we're talking about things of um why haven't you posted that letter the principal asked you to post why haven't you um why haven't you filled the car up for the next day why haven't you washed the car why haven't you done this why haven't you done that these are all things that don't get out into the media, and rightly so, because they're boring. They're, they're not interested. The public doesn't need to know about it. What the public needs to know is the fact that the UK government has imposed a set of margins for a training uh, of a um, close protection operative, a serious profession, whereby um, uh, the end result could be very serious. That is the bottom line. And what you just said as well, in terms of you can pay this and get that, or you can pay that, pay this and get that. The bottom end result is that, that piece of plastic. So you can pay 800 pounds on a course, or you can pay 5,000, you're still gonna end up with that piece of plastic. Um, and at the end of the day, that's the ticket you need to work in the industry. So it's, it's unfortunate that you can have people that will actually go out their way and look for that best training possible and spend longer on the training, spend more of their hard-earned money on the training, and end up with exactly the same license as someone else. And it brings, it brings up the question, should we have a tier, a colour-coded license based on experience? But the SIA is simply not going to entertain that because it's a barrier to employment. People have to start somewhere, of course, and you can't have a set of training courses where the delivery of a certain course provides you with a uh, a green license and the other one provides you with an amber one it, it, it just it, the whole situation is unworkable but at the end of the day someone with a good background a good course training isn't recognized on the street because they're because tom is exactly the same as dick who's exactly the same as harry yeah, the, the one thing i've always found crazy about the sie and the cp sector from the very first license i obtained last three years you reapply, you get it again. Three years go, you apply again, you get it again. There's no refresher training. There's no nothing, you know. And I know that you know there'd be many people who have worked in the industry and <laughs> renewed their license every three years, and they haven't been in full-time employment. Some of them have done very little employment and they've stepped away because they couldn't get work. But their license will get renewed every single time, and there's no barrier to that. You know, there's no checks. Um, yeah, it's, I just I find that crazy it's that twelve years down the line you can reapply and you're going to get the same license without any checks that you've been in employment or you know done any further refresher refresher training to develop yourself. It's it's crazy. What if what if I try and find some positive in all of this? Just just a, a little positive with the drawdown. 
people are assuming this is going to get a lot worse because there'll be a lot more people looking for the same amount of work, if not less work. But could we not see that as an opportunity that the client will have a greater selection of experience? Um, is that maybe a possible positive to look forward to? No. No. No, not, not at all, Pelham. Unfortunately, the industry just doesn't work like that because um, there's, there is one fantastic analogy about the econo economics of things. And it, it, it goes like this. Um, and we're talking about the economic rationales developed by some sort of eco economist somewhere. And the, and the thing goes about um, there are 98 dogs in the uh, there's a nine, there's 100 dogs in the room and there's no, only 95 bones. So they send the 100 dogs into the room to grab a bone. And of course, five dogs come back, come back without any bones. So they get they come together and they say, how can we fix the problem? And they send the five dogs off to training how to find bones. They conduct the test again. They send 100 dogs in to get 95 bones. But of course, the five dogs they've trained, they end up getting bones. But of course, there's still going to be five dogs without the bones. When, it, when you're talking about an industry where you have X number of opportunities and Y number of trained operatives, I mean, I don't know how many thousands there are CP operatives now. Last I looked, there was over 7,000. But out of that 7,000 in the UK, the um, you can guarantee, I mean, sure, sure we're both guaranteed that, that, that only a small fraction of that are actually uh doing the industry circuit as you call and even a smaller fraction of that are involved on permanent jobs and we're not talking in permanent res jobs we're talking permanent cp jobs that uh, that, that go on they're proper con contracted till you're 65 years old or whatever these are very small diamond dust opportunities that everyone is after you see so what's just happened in afghanistan yeah. you have a, an awful lot of um SIA trained uh, CP operatives, majority of which are former military. They've gone out there, conducted PSD or PSD style operations. Afghanistan closes down. They come back to the UK looking for CP work. And of course, they're, they're, they're hitting a, uh, an industry sector that's, um, that's badly hit by COVID. Um, but even if they came back to the, came back to the country and COVID wasn't around, they still won't be able to fall slot back into a CP job that easily. Yes, the major security companies out there, the global, the global um, organizations, they will have fingers in pies in a lot of countries. Um, there'll be opportunities out there, but you'll find that most of these opportunities actually require a whole different set of um, uh, qualifications. Uh, and no doubt we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll be talking about the qualification size later on. In terms of the SIACP course and the general industry um, approach now, um, which is pretty laissez-faire, um, they, they will provide um, credence to theories that um, students cannot be expected to take more time off work. There is no evidence that an eight-week course is better than a two-week course. Uh, no course makes anyone an expert. Uh, you learn on the job. The course is only a starting point. Uh, and a good course can be delivered in two weeks. And these are all the excuses where they're falling down to the acceptance line of, do you know what? This is what we've been given. This is our lot in life. Crack on and deal with it. 
do your course, get out into the industry, learn the job, and then you can carry on with your career. And this mindset, this mindset is totally wrong. It's totally wrong. You don't find doctors doing that. Police, police officers straight out of the college, they have a two year probation. There's no mechanisms in place to ensure that when someone leaves a two year, a two week course, that um, they are then uh, mentored, they're supervised when they when they go on to a, a job. So yeah, as, as we're talking about the, the drawdown from Afghanistan, it's you know already before the drawdown. I think in the UK, there's a lot more bums mm -hmm. than what there is seats. So it, it's you, you're, you're dead right. You know, coming back from Afghanistan as well, the guys who've operated over there for a number of years, they have a different set of skills to what's required in a corporate or within a family office working for someone within the UK. It's whilst, you know, they may have a fantastic set of skills, you know, some principals don't want to employ someone who's come straight spending five, six years in Afghanistan because they think maybe they haven't been checked, they haven't had the stop gap, the break to free themselves from that. You know, they've been in a hostile environment where, you know, to them, all they see is the news, what's going on. They've been sat at the camp doing nothing, but to them, they don't know that. So, it is, you know, for them guys who've just come back from Afghanistan, it's going to be very tough to, to break down. But on the flip side, the guys who have spent a small amount on a course or and just done the, the bare minimum token effort to get work are already in the UK, surely, if you're one of, one of these guys or girls, you'd be looking at this vacuum of people coming back to the UK. You've got to think, I'm going to have to invest in myself and do... <laughs> something more. Mm. I only got, I don't know, first aid at work from this course. I get to get FREC 3 or FREC 4 to improve my medical skills or go and do that. You know, you need to do something to catapult yourself up that list of operators who are, who are coming yeah. back from these places. Um, but, Rich, anyway, stepping back from individual licensing, what was your thoughts on business licensing? We've spoke about anyone can join the UK CP industry with no background whatsoever, you know, no military background, no uh, police background. You can come from school, go and do a CP course and, and get a license. And we've spoke about the onus on companies to vet the guys and girls once they've done a course. So, so what's your thoughts on sort of business license as a, as a second stock up in quality control? Do you think it would benefit the industry or uh, to, to be honest with you, Sean, I, I don't know too much about the business licensing aspect. Um, I do have something actually that I could read out um, because I did ask the SIA about them. Um, just give me two seconds. Uh, well, whilst you're searching for that, I mean, it was spoken about, wasn't it, a few years ago? And I actually thought it would be a really positive thing because there are so many you know, fly-by-night companies and you know, the undercutting of price across all of these businesses. And if you, you know, you've got your guys and girls who are licensed, and then if you've got that second quality check with the companies, you haven't got so many companies going for the same jobs. They're held accountable for what they're providing. And I think it would be a positive step, but it just needs to be rolled out correctly and not just as a, I don't know, a checkbox, like maybe the individual licensing was. But I do think it could be a good thing for the well, industry. Um, what I have here, in 2019, the Right Honourable Nick Hearn MP 
who was the Minister of State for Policing and the Fire Services at the time, responded to the outstanding recommendations of the review of the SIA. The Minister reported the government's position that the review had produced insufficient evidence for extending the current licensing regime under new, reg under new legislation. Therefore, the government would not be pursuing changes such as business licensing or replacing individual licensing with a compulsory approved contractor scheme. The additional regulatory burden, cost and complexity of introducing business licensing, i.e. while simultaneously phasing out individual licensing to prevent double regulation without a substantive business case was a key factor in the government's decision. Business licensing, therefore, will not be going ahead. Um, and to be honest with you, uh, from what little I know about business licensing, I don't really agree with it anyway. It, it needs to be an individual basis. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. But do you, not, do you not think if businesses were licensed, say, you know, your company Mobius, my company and all the other companies that it would get rid of a lot of, I don't know, maybe chuff, companies that just set up, take on things and, you know, draw the price down. If, you know, the companies were licensed as well, I, I mean, I can't see any negatives to it if it's rolled out correctly. Um, I, I think it would be a good thing, but it's, like you say, it's got, it's got to be rolled out in the correct manner and some thought given to it. Um, otherwise, we have the same situation which you've mentioned. Anyone can go and set up a company, anyone can bid on anything and, you know, get these contracts and you know, put whoever they want on these jobs. And there's no real quality check. If the quality check is from the company, why isn't the company quality checked? Well, the, the thing is, there's, there's, there's several points what you mentioned, and I do agree with you. Um, however, um, the, the way the industry is run um, is the fact that people, uh, it's an individual career. People are very rarely permanently employed. And when they are employed, um, it's usually done through a, a company set up for the, for the basis of uh, finance and administration as opposed to a, uh, a major uh, security company. And we're talking about private family office here. So in effect, you would be termed as directly employed, but for the benefits of finance and admin, you actually come under a company uh, that pays you wages, deals with expenses and so on. Um, but they're not, in effect, they're not actually a security company that provides services to anyone else. They're, it's there solely for the team. So in addition to that, if you were to change something about the security industry, business um, and what I'd like to see change would be a case of, okay, you're delivering the service, you need to prove, uh, you need to provide evidence of your own training and knowledge in the delivery of that service so that you can provide a set up a company delivering that service, as opposed to what happens now, you, anyone can incorporate a company without any knowledge or training. Um, yes, I mean, if they could do that, then great. But of course, they can't just do that to one industry and not to any other industry. So then we come back to the Home Office as, as well on, on a statistical concern. You, you, they want people to be in employment. And if you were to set barriers like that, they are in effect barriers to employment. You want people to create business, to create work, to employ people. They're not really care, they don't care about the standard. In their eyes, the person that cares about the standards is the end user, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is a, a ridiculous notion because they're the people who are setting the standards. They're the people who are regulating and licensing the standards. Yeah, these, these standards that they're imposing on industry is theirs. 
And yet, what are we left with? What's the end user left with? They're left with an empty suit on the streets. And harsh as though that may seem, yeah, that is reality. That really is the thrust of the issue here. And people in the industry, they can harp on about saying, ah, oh, well, this, this is, I've got this background, I can do this, I can do that. What you're saying isn't really important. It's never going to happen. I mean, don't forget, the UK SIA is solely for the UK environment. So there's a whole list of uh, aspects concerning close protection that the SIA doesn't even include by, by default setting. There's no high risk environment training whatsoever. So when you have someone attending a two week SIA course and they turn around to you and, say, and you question them and say, oh, but um, you're not trained in firearms. You're not trained in anti-ambush drills. Well, what good are you? Oh, yes, but I, don't, I, don't, I only want to work in the UK. You can guarantee that if you had a businessman approach them and say, I want to employ you in, in a few countries in South America, I'll pay you this. Are they really going to turn it down and admit to them, I'm sorry, so I'm, I'm not trained in a whole host of uh, skill sets that I require for that environment. The whole thing is, uh, is um, dare I say, it's, it's, uh, the whole thing is shrouded in a, uh, a smoke and mirrors effect where um, you have training providers and operational companies providing a service, a training or operational service, done under the banner of um, we provide the highest standards we go above and beyond the SIA we we know what you need we can provide it in reality that's far from the truth um, companies will say we've got strategic partners in reality they don't and uh, I've, 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 I've proven that to myself I mean I've only I've seen both sides of the fence um, so only up until five years ago, uh, I was just solely um, providing the service on the ground. Now I'm on the other side of the fence where I'm actually doing business, the business side. And when you come to interact with other companies and you know that they're involved in the same sort of tendering process because you, you have end users approaching various companies for quotes, you know for, for a fact that other companies, they're not actually true to the word on their, on their website. And let's not forget, in the UK, you have a pool of operatives, the majority of which have done a two-week course. So that's your pool of operatives, and they're out there. They are ready to work. They fire their CVs off to all these companies. You go on one company website, and they'll claim this. You go on to another one, and they'll claim this. You go on to another, and they'll claim this. At the end of the day, they're using the same pool of operatives. So the end result on the ground in terms of operational performance is exactly the same. A company can state blurb, blurb, blurb on their website, but yes, that may be in accordance with BSI standards, ISOs, and so on, tick boxes for the office. But that doesn't affect operational performance on the ground by the individual. So this is ultimately the most important factor of it. What is an end user, a client, actually receiving on the ground? And when someone says, Oh, I've got 10 years experience in close protection. What exactly does that experience involve? I can be following someone. I can be following someone around. I can be sat in vehicles, sat in hotel lobbies for 10 years. Is that experience? Is that really experience of close protection? No, it's not. <laughs> anyone can follow someone around. Anyone can, can be sat in a car or a hotel lobby. 
but it's actually what you're doing with your head. What are you actually looking out for? Are you being proactive in your uh, threat and risk mitigation? Is the client actually receiving a service he thinks he has bought from a company? I mean, you have a whole host of things of a, a company oversight on an operation. So you can have um, a client, a client approaches a, uh, a company um, for, for a close protection service. And the company says, yes, we can provide that. And they'll then fire out on social media. We need five CPOs and three vehicles for first to the second of first to the first of September to the second of October. They get all these CVs in. There you go. There's a job. Or they'll, send, they'll, they'll put a post out on a WhatsApp group. There you go. Bang. There's your job. They'll leave it to a team leader to sort it out. There's there's lack of uh, concern with a client, his needs. Do they actually sit down with a client and they they understand the reasons for the provision of service? Do they actually form a proper threat and risk assessment for him? Do they actually select the CVs according to mitigation of that risk? Do they actually provide that service that the client wants and needs? It's, it's, uh, it's very much a, uh, uh, a bums on seats, footfall, slapdash, laissez-faire attitude to the whole process. And what does the SIA do? In 2005 or 2004, I gave them a list of everything a CP course should contain. Most of it, they, they didn't include it. 15 years down the line, we see them consider physical intervention for close protection. I told them about this 15 years ago. The SIA regulate the industry in hindsight. They're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic when it should be steered properly. The whole process is wrong. The industry, I mean, the good things, going back to your question, Pelham, we are digressing slightly. Yes, there are huge positives taken from the industry. The industry has um, increased for the better over the years. Without a doubt, it has. But let's not forget, what was the start point? The start point was so low. You're talking about courses and garages at the bottom of a garden. So now you have a a licensed process, you have a somewhat vetted process in terms of criminality, you have a proper regulated and licensed industry, you have an imposed set of standards for a course, and you have an industry where more knowledge about the service is now present than it was decades ago. But should we actually stay there? Should we actually say, wow, pat ourselves on the back, we've done a great job? No. <laughs> well, as long as long as uh, people like yourself are there, uh, you know, banging the drum, hopefully somebody will listen at some stage. Um, I, I have some experience with bureau bureaucrats, having worked as a bureaucrat, um, so I can appreciate uh, the context um, and the, some some of, some of the difficulties. Um, it's often it's often said, you know, don't don't uh, commission a, a report into something that you don't know the outcome uh, already of. Actually, it's often said that's probably something from Yes Minister, um, <laughs> but 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 there's certainly room for improvement. Um, so many different places we could go, but I think this is a very useful tour de force and sort of snapshot about now, about what you're doing and about what the industry could uh, help you champion um, if if they there are useful ears listening uh, to this, for example. Um, but we we do have to end it somewhere. So. From Sean and myself, Richard, this has been an excellent uh, 
expose, uh, uh, you know, snapshot. And, and, and I really hope this will energize at least some people with influence, but if not people with influence, then people, uh, you know, as the industry uh, as a whole, that's, that's my wish. Thank you very much for having me guys. A hot topic indeed. Should we leave it to the market? Should we leave it to government to decide what standards we should or should not have? Richard H., as always, a very, very passionate speaker. Um, John, what, what do you think we can take away from today? Well, I think, you know, when you get somebody on like Rich, who spends a lot of time in this area, you know, I mean, Rich has literally wrote the book on it. Um you know, deep thinker on standards and definitely has a very strong opinion on regu regulation. And I think one thing that is evident is that it's a powerful force. It's something that we might have to consider as a necessary evil that we need to learn to work with and not spend all our time fighting. Yes, you know, let's fight to make change where it's possible but also understand that it's here, we have to accept it, and we have to find, in addition to working with the, the board, the SIA board, we have to find other ways in which we can promote standards, you know, and that's what the Circuit magazine was created for. It was born out of this. We created the Circuit magazine and the two associations over 13 years ago, at a time when the SIA was just being conceived and there was very little in terms of standard and there was a huge influx into the industry. So it was important that there were voices at that stage and, you know, support it. A lot of people who make, this is my belief anyway, bad decisions, bad operating calls in the industry do so a lot of the time out of ignorance or because they were they were influenced by others and they didn't already come in with that institutionalized standardization and you know that's that, so that's that's what we exist for and that's what we've been doing for well over a decade and as much as maybe we can say that we need to raise standards. And, and yes, maybe the SIA are more concerned with uh, other badges that one can have apart from CP that are perhaps um, you know, more day-to-day. Um, -day. Um, at least it is a baseline. Um, not the case in other countries. Uh, for example, the states have been grappling with this. Um, of course, individual states have their own requirements, but for a national standard, I know ACES have uh, you know, been looking at it and uh, you know, even more recently, uh, the uh, newly formed Board of Executive Protection Professionals um, with uh, James Cameron and, and other colleagues like Joe Bonillo, uh, you know, they, they, they're looking at getting that standard up um, across the board. But I do wonder if it's not a federal requirement. Um, and I, 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 I don't think that federal requirements are quite uh, popular. Um, I, 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 you know, I wonder how they're going to do it. You know, this is this is going to be really interesting to watch because if they are able to conceive of something that does set a standard, 
that people adhere to, and it doesn't just become the low bar to entry that many people consider the SIA to be, then it could be, you know, a good working model for everyone else to look at. So I'm, you know, for one, I'm really excited about this, really looking forward to see how uh, how this goes. And it's, you, you look at the people who are on the board and you certainly know that if they, if they don't achieve their aim, it won't be for the want of trying. Now, that is an excellent uh, way to look at it. So shout out to our US friends. We, we definitely want to uh, talk to you on one of the episodes of the uh, Circuit Magazine and, and, and definitely want to get some articles in uh, on, that, uh, on that topic as well. Because, you know, obviously uh, what happens in the States reverberates around the world, um, uh, as, as we all know. Um, but talking about articles, um, I know that we are very keen for some new contributors to this next uh, edition. Um, what, uh, what, kind of, what kind of topics do you think would go down well? I, I know last uh, time we had some very interesting ones on etiquette. Uh, uh, Suzanne uh, uh, you know, very, very kindly uh, put something in. What, what could people uh, come to us with in terms of contributions for the next magazine? Well, you know, Pelham, rather than talk about specific areas of contribution, we've, we've spoke about this, you know, at the end of the podcast for a few weeks now. And, you know, what, what I don't want is it to become just white noise uh, that everyone tunes out. Uh, I, I think I'd really like to f- just re- take a moment to reflect on what we mean by contribution and the different forms it can take. Now, we've got a large community, both in the associations, readers, and listeners to the podcast. And there's so many different ways in which you can contribute. And it's not just about, you know, putting words on paper. It could be as simple as sharing this podcast, you know, with with a friend or or a colleague. And it, it really helps spread the word it gets more people into the community it gets more people talking and therefore contributing to this bigger message and and you know this is this is not a call to action from a commercial point of view this is again building into the whole standards of the industry because i I like to think that our communities are really built on solid foundations of hardcore of professionals you know many people in our communities have been with us since day one and and that has created this really strong spine and we you know we have some fantastic discussions there's there's good discussions going on right now in the apps you know uh, there's a there's a great conversation that i that i put out there in the bba app about uh, drivers and relationship building and to see the responses that that got, you know, is really encouraging. And this is what we want to do just throughout all the platforms. So listen, whatever suits you best, whether it's the newsletter, whether it's the podcast, the magazine, one of our events, you know, just, just ask yourself, can I do one more thing? You know, whether that's leave a comment, whether that's write an article, whether that is tell a friend, you know, and, and let's let's try to to grow this and expand it and see what uh, discussions we can have on this. Well, then that is an excellent place to leave it to. I know it's not a, 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 a call to action, but let me make it a call to action. Please like subscribe, write an article and share this podcast uh, to at least one other. Uh, uh, you know, you, you can share it on LinkedIn. That's 
obviously somewhere you can you can really get good traction uh, but of course everywhere is available as well um big topic many thanks to rich h ceo of mobius on the topic of standards and regulation especially in the uk for the cp industry this has been a big and important episode of the circuit magazine podcast You have been listening to the Circuit Magazine podcast. Be sure to subscribe and be sure to not miss an episode.